everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. So if you have your Bibles, Church Lies, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and then we will go over to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden... God said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, that it was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate also. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Starting in verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now I understand these things might not make sense in conjunction But keep in mind, the basis of this series is simply entitled Church Lies. I was going to call it Bible Lies because most of the time we have a tendency to take the Bible and contort it and manipulate it, even with the most innocent of circumstances, and write something in there or speak something that God has never said. And then I started thinking and praying about it, and it can't be Bible Lies, even though we mess things up, because God says in his word, let God be true and every man be a liar, which means no matter how bad I mess things up, no matter how awful. I do a disservice to the word of God, even if in malice I preach the wrong things of the word of God, it is not a blight against the word of God, nor a blight against God himself. Rather, it is that I as a man, or we as a church, have in error or in malice created a lie that Satan will use to irrigate his way into our lives and rob us of what God has intended for us. So let's go ahead and start with the basis. We're in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. They've had a wonderful time. They've been eating all these trees, and Satan comes walking in on all those legs as a serpent. And he goes up to Eve, and he's talking to her at the tree. And he looks at her and says the first thing, did God really say you can't eat every tree? Now the funny thing is God said you can eat of any tree. You can eat of any tree that you want here in the garden. I don't care which tree it is. You can choose not to eat of any tree. You can choose to eat every single tree every day except one tree that I placed right in the center. Don't eat that one. Basically, God was saying, that's mine. It's not that the tree was evil. It's not that the tree was wrong. It's that God said, I have reserved for myself a portion of the garden that will always be mine first before you touch anything else. You understand that God was already establishing the concept of a tithe right at the beginning too. He said, I always get the first of everything. This tree is mine. We like to think that that tree was evil. Oh, that God put that tree in there of the knowledge of good and evil. No, that tree carried with it the weight of being able to tell the world and all creation, 
this is what is good, and this is what is evil. Not the ability to identify. That tree was a divine tree that said you have authority to determine something is good and to determine something is evil. You understand that the minute God comes up to something, if at one point it happened to be wrong, the minute he puts his hand on it and says it's now good, that thing stops being evil and now has become a good. That is what that tree's weight was. It was the ability to act as God, to look at anything and make it good or look at anything and make it evil regardless of what it was. And Satan walks in and he says, did God really say? Did he say don't eat every tree? He always starts out with just a little bit of truth. He always says, did God really say that? And Eve, knowing the word of God, because she's talked with Adam and talked with God, no, God didn't say that. He said we can eat of any tree, just not this one. And then Eve makes the greatest error she could have ever made in all her life. He said don't eat of this tree and don't Touch the tree. Go back to when God's creating. Makes Adam, makes all the trees, makes the land, all these things, brings all the animals to Adam. Adam, I've got a job for you. Now I've got someone who's going to help you in that job. The two of you together are going to rule the earth in dominion in my stead. You are going to rule the earth in a way that looks like me, Adam. And I'm going to give you every single tree. And now I'm going to plant this one in the garden, and that's mine. Don't eat it. The day you eat it, you die. He never said anything about touching it. See, Eve started misquoting scripture. She understood the word of God. She had heard the word of God and in a desire to honor God. It wasn't that she was trying to have any malice. It was not trying that she was trying to rebel against God. She understood God said, don't eat this tree. And so in her mind, and probably in Adam's mind too, they probably made an agreement. Well, if I can't eat the tree, why would I make it difficult on myself by touching the tree as well? You ever think about that? Well, I'm not sinning, but you're talking really, really close to it. I haven't done anything wrong yet, but you just kind of stand on the edge of sin like you're playing patty cake with it so that I didn't sin, but man, you'd like to interact with it. I haven't sinned and I haven't transgressed God, but you're putting yourself awfully close. Adam and Eve, probably in a desire to honor God, said, well, he said don't eat the tree. So to make sure we don't ever find ourselves where we accidentally eat the tree or even tempt ourselves to eat of that tree, let's just decide not to touch it at all. Now, that's a pretty smart thing to do. If it's going to be a temptation, why even get near it? Just put it off to the side. God, it's yours. I'm not going to mess with it. But the problem is, is they added words to God. In their sincerity to honor God, they said, well, we'll not touch it. That's fine. Nothing wrong with saying we'll not touch it. But all God said was don't eat of it. When Eve said, God said, when she added to what he said, in her desire to honor him, when Adam verified what Eve said, that God said, in a desire to honor God, what they ended up doing is they put in something God never said, and as a result, the minute you introduce something God never said that you think he said, Satan gets to walk right in and begin to deal with the lie. See, he never really challenged the part when she said, well, you shall not eat of it and you shall die. He just dealt with the whole touching part. He said, well, I can't deal with the part that God said, if you eat of it, you'll die. I've got to start with the touching part. And Eve said, if we touch it, we'll die. So you want to know what Satan did? He completely ignores the part about eating it and goes right to the side. Did God really say, and probably just said, Eve, look at this thing. It's beautiful. Do you really think something that God created? God does not make anything bad. God does not make anything evil. God does not make anything in the air. God does not make mistakes. Do you really think that if you touched the fruit of this tree, it would kill you? And Eve started. 
starting to rationalize and think, well, maybe not. And I can just imagine Satan sitting right there in that tree as she reaches up and touches that apple and he looks at her and says, see, nothing happened. And notice right after that, he shuts up and waits for the lie to begin to dig its way into her brain. God told us not to eat. God told us not to touch. If we touch it, we die. Eve, why don't you just touch the apple and see what happens? Satan isn't challenging the word of God. He's challenging Eve's words. Why don't you just touch it and see what She reaches out, grabs it. Notice how you're not dead, Eve. And with that little statement, all of a sudden she begins to think, well, I'm not supposed to touch it because I'll die. And I've touched it and I'm not dead. Then it must be okay to eat it. So if I'm not dead from touching it, I probably won't die from eating it. Satan never says a single word. He just introduces the word of God, waits for Eve to misspeak about what the word of God is, then begins to challenge the part that God never said so that he begins to contort and confuse. And then once he has planted the depth of the lie, he just lets it begin to grow and blossom into deceit. Do you understand how many times we do that in our lives as Christians? How many times we do that in our lives as a church? Do you understand how often, not even trying to hurt people, but in a desire to honor God, we end up accidentally introducing things that God has never said. They might be good common sense. It might be good horse sense to do those things. It might even be a wise thing to do. But the problem is, is when we start attaching it as though God has said it, what Satan likes to do is he likes to waltz in, take that little piece that God never said, even though it might be a wise thing to do. Take that little piece that God never said and say, well, if this is wrong, maybe the rest of it's wrong. If God messed up this part, even though it's wisdom, even though God didn't say it, but we think he said, if God messed up this part, do you really think the rest? I'll give you a great example. Have you ever heard that drinking alcohol is a lie? Or a sin? Not a lie. Sorry. I don't know what I'm talking about. with. Li- I'm so stuck on Satan lying that I'm now calling everything. Have you ever heard that drinking alcohol is a sin? You ever heard that getting a tattoo is a sin? Dan, you're going to hell. Love you. I won't see you there. I have no tattoos. I'm more pure than you. Yeah. Now let's go ahead and talk really fast about tattoos and alcohol. Not because that's the focus of the sermon, but because it's the easiest place to illustrate how in a desire to exercise wisdom, in a desire to exercise caution, we accidentally introduce things that God did not say. Now I know what you're thinking about tattoos. You go back into the book of Leviticus or the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy. God begins to address tattoos and he says you'll not mark your body for any God. The point of the tattoos in the Old Testament was that you would mark your body and show which God you belong to. And they had just come out of Egypt where they liked tattoos a lot. Because they had Osiris as a God, they had Ra as a God, they had Hotep as a God, they even had Pharaoh as a God. And so depending on which temple they ministered at, they would tattoo their body to show I belong to this God and the ministry of this. And God said, when I brought you out of Egypt, there better not be any marking on you for any other God other than me, Jehovah. And the marking on your life will be the one that I place upon your heart. Tattoos do not have the purpose they used to have nowadays, do they? The point back then was to demonstrate which God you belong to. Nowadays, they're really just a little bit of an artistic thing. Now, that being said, let me give you this as well. I cannot get a tattoo. For me, it would be sin. For no other reason that I went up to God one time when I was a youth pastor. I said, God, I'd like to get a tattoo. And he said, no. And I said, why not? It's not a sin. And he looked at me and said, for you, it's a sin. I said, why is it a sin for me? Because right now you're a youth pastor. 
And the type of church you're living in has a lot of difficulty with those. And it wasn't a slight against the church that I was ministering at. It was a slight against that if I was willing to get a tattoo, knowing that a lot of those families told their kids that they could not get tattoos. All of a sudden, if Pastor JJ, who teaches their children the word of God every Wednesday and every Sunday, shows up with tattoos on his body, and the kids look at that and say, well, if Pastor JJ can do it, then I can do it. And so now I've sent a child back into his home to rebel against his parents, say, well, Pastor JJ did this. Why can't I? You understand? that I've created rebellion in the household just with a simple disobedience to God. Nothing innately sinful about me getting a tattoo until God said, because of the position in you're in, at this specific church, at this specific time, for you, it is a sin. Now, if I introduce that to everybody, all of a sudden you have people sincerely believing what I joked about a second ago. Dan, I'm sorry you're not pure. Those tattoos sending you straight to hell. I wish you could get there. Those are as bad as the mark of the beast. I will not see you understand that's what ends up happening when we, in error, speak on behalf of God. Let's talk about alcohol real fast. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You want to know what the sin part about alcohol is? Drunkenness. And by the way, drunkenness does not start when all of a sudden you're blacked out. It starts when you're tipsy. You want to know how I know it starts when you're tipsy? Because all of a sudden you begin to lose focus and control over what your body and mind are capable of processing. The problem with alcohol is that you are submitting yourself under the rule and control of a substance other than God. Now, please don't run off with that. I understand that there are meds that do that. You need them to regulate pain. I understand that there are medications that do that. When you have a mental fracture in your brain, you understand I take things from my depression and on and on. This is not a conversation about there is a legitimate brokenness in my body or my mind. This is a conversation that I am trying to use something other than God to escape from reality so that I can operate it in a way better than I can do on my own. The problem with alcohol, when the Bible says don't be drunk but be filled, is it's drawing a dichotomy, saying don't let alcohol be the thing that so consumes your mind so that you can try and make your way through life. Because most of the time when you drink, it's so that you don't have to deal with the pain of your life. It's so that you don't have to deal with the anxiety happening all around you. It's so that you don't have to deal with the sorrow or the brokenness in your life. And he says, be filled with the Spirit. What he's saying is, I understand life is hard. Life is bad. Don't use something other than the Spirit of God to make it through this so that you can be satisfied, so that you can be stable, so that you can be calmed in this. But that being said, what about when the Bible says a little bit of wine is good for the heart? See, we, we've made this statement before in the church. Well, drinking alcohol at all is a sin. No, the minute it starts making you tipsy, you've crossed into sin territory. But to have a drink, that not in and of itself is not sinful. Now, I'll give you another one. I am the pastor of this church. I am ordained by the Churches of Christ in Christian Union. If you did not know that is our denomination, there you go. It's a bit of a mouthful. For shortening it, we call it 3CU. When I was interviewing for it, there was a question on there that says, do you drink? And I checked yes, and I wrote in there about once or twice a year. And in my interview, they looked at me and said, thank you for your honesty. Our pastors, we require of them not to drink at all. They said, do you have a problem with that? I said, no, I don't have a problem with it because it's what my authority is asking me. And I said, if that is the cost to be able to preach in a church that I believe God has called me to, that is a simple price to pay so that I can preach the gospel. That being said, now if I drink, it becomes a sin because I am rebelling against my authority. But when I say blanket, it's a sin for everyone. Then the lies start creeping in. 
because what do you do when all of a sudden the cognitive dissonance comes in? If God hasn't come to you and specifically said, listen, the one glass of wine that you drink every now and then, he doesn't convict you about that because for you it's not a sin. But the preacher and the church have said all alcohol is a sin. Then Satan starts kind of sneaking his way in and says, well, if they're wrong about that being a sin, maybe it is okay for you to hop online and look at other women. If they were wrong about that being a sin, maybe it is okay for you to talk to another man because he actually has some kindness and romance towards you, even though your husband doesn't. You're not cheating on your husband. You're not stepping out. You're just letting another man feed that part of you that starts. Maybe if they were wrong about that part, but do you see what happens when we add things that God didn't say? Now let's go to the actual focus of today. 1 Corinthians. Let anyone take heed, lest they fall. And then it says this right after that. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But with temptation, God will not permit you to be tempted beyond what you can bear and will provide the way of escape. Now, I like that verse a lot because, first of all, it tells me a couple of things. When I'm being tempted, everybody's being tempted. If there's something that I'm being tempted about, it's not because I'm more broken than someone else. It's not because I'm more messed up than someone else. It's not because I have some type of ailment in my spirit that makes me more susceptible to that. It simply means one thing and one thing alone Everybody deals with that temptation. And it might not be as difficult a temptation. Some people struggle in other areas more than others. Some of us have problems with road rage. Some of us have problems with bitterness. Some of us have problems with lust. Some of us have problems with gossiping. Some of us have problems with anxiety. Some of us have problems with not trusting God. Some of us have problems with pride or control. And on and on. And we might have certain sins that are more difficult for us. But every sin is common to everyone, which means the next time Satan tries to come up to you and says, I can't believe you're struggling with this. So-and-so over there doesn't struggle with that. You must be such an immature and baby Christian to be struggling with this. You are so weak in your, I cannot believe you don't trust God enough to make it through. Every sin is common, which means anytime I'm going through something, yes, it's hurtful. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's difficult. And he calls it something you bear. When's the last time that you thought of something that you had to bear and you thought, well, this is light. When you think of the word something I have to bear, it is a weight pressing down upon you. It is something heavy. Temptation is heavy. It has value in its weight and its ability to crush and cripple. That is why God says, first of all, it's common. I can't have you running around under the lie that all of a sudden you are so specially broken that Satan can just kick you around. But in the same breath, I cannot have you believe that this thing ought to be light. Because temptation in and of itself is not a light thing. It is a fight. It is a, that's why Paul says we wrestle. Notice he didn't say we just converse casually. Notice he didn't say we play a game of checkers. Notice he didn't say we sit down over a cup of coffee with sin and temptation and it just goes back. No, it is a bearing to fight with sin. And then God says, I like this part. It won't be more than you can handle. Now, we're talking about a lot of things today, and I like how encouraging this verse is, but if we're going to talk about the lie that the church has accidentally brought, bought into, God will not give you more than you can bear. Here's the lie. You ever been going through something difficult in your life? 
not talking about temptation. I'm not talking about I'm having a desire to rebel against God's will for my life. I'm not talking about I'm having a desire to shoot my mouth off at my wife when she and I are having an argument and going back and forth. And then that thing stirs up inside of me that says, you've got to be right about this. You can't afford to let her be right. Even if you're wrong, you've got to win this argument. And you st- Or when you're in an argument with someone else or when you're going about your... I'm not talking about when you have that feeling that pangs your heart that is so desperately trying to draw you away from the will of God for your life. Has life ever just been crippling? To the point where it feels as though it's dealing you blow after blow after blow. It feels as though it's knocked your legs out from underneath you. It feels as though it has taken the wind out of your lungs. It feels as though it has thrown your brain and your mind into chaos, as though you can't think straight. You can't seem to figure out what the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do in this situation. We're not talking about the sinful thing to do or the nonsense. We're talking about what's the best decision for this chaos that's happening. I'm talking about when life gets to the point where it feels as though it is You ever heard someone say, well, don't worry, God will not give you more than you can bear. Please tell me where in that verse I just read where it says anything about the difficulties and the trials of life. Please tell me in that verse where it says anything about the pain that we live through in a life that is fraught with pain. In fact, even Jesus says, be not deceived in this life, you will have trouble. I'll get to the good part of that verse here in a minute. But even Jesus shows up and says, life is going to be painful. Life is going to be difficult. Life is going to be crippling sometimes. That's why he even goes so far in the Beatitudes to say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Because there will be times in life where it is so crippling that the only thing you can do is fall apart and begin to weep or feel sorrow and pain in your heart. And God says, when it's gotten that bad and you're willing to let it be the reality that it is, then I can come in. Please tell me where in this verse that we have read today, where it says anything about when life is that hard that God will not give you more than you can bear. It doesn't. We have in error taken a verse that deals exclusively with temptation. Now that's a good thing because that means I don't ever have an excuse to sin. That's not to make me feel bad. It's to let me know that God will never leave me alone when I'm struggling with temptation. And he'll always give me a way of escape. He will never leave me in a place where I have no other choice but to give in to sin and temptation. Which is a wonderful thing because it does two things. Number one, when I succeed, I can go back and give glory to God. God, you saved me from this and you made sure that it was something that I could escape from by your grace. When I fail, I can always go back to God and say, he is faithful and just to forgive. Lord, show me how to escape next time because I missed something. There's always grace and mercy. But I might have to repent when I end up failing, but in the same breath, keep in mind, there's never this aspect of shame where it says, how could you have just messed this up all over again? This verse deals exclusively with sin and temptation. And we In our sincerity, no malice about it. When we see people going through difficult things, we legitimately come to, listen, God will not give you more than you can bear. Don't worry about it. I'm sure you'll be able to make it through. And what we end up doing, when we end up taking that verse and applying it to them, when life feels as though it's about to crush them, you want to know what the lies that begin to swirl around in their head that Satan is so excited? Why is this thing in life beating you up? I thought God wouldn't give you more than you can handle. You mean to tell me you're such a weak Christian? 
that you can't tap into the strength of Almighty God? I thought you believed that when you become a Christian, when you are saved, blood-bought, and born again, you're a new creation. Satan loves quoting scripture, by the way. It's his favorite thing. I thought when you got saved, when you became a new creation, that the fullness of God dwells in you. That means the same God that was at the beginning of creation, recreating the entire universe to fit his desires for what it looked like. That means the same God that was able to step out on nothing and speak everything into existence lives in the depths of your heart. And you mean to tell me, good little new creation Christian, that you can't even make it through this small thing? I know your best friend just died. I know you just went through a divorce. I know you just lost a child. I know that you just lost your job. I know that it feels like you're not going to be able to pay your bills. I know you're about to go bankrupt. I know you're feeling anxiety that it feels like it's crushing you and crippling you and robbing you of the ability to breathe. I know you're dealing with depression. I you mean to tell me that you're so weak in your Christianity that you cannot bolster yourself up under these things? God won't give you anything you can bear. Don't worry about it. Just be a stronger Christian. How many times do you talk to yourself like that when you're having a hard time in life? Maybe not those words, but you God will not give you anything more than you can bear. Right. In temptation. Life, on the other hand. I wish someone could run to Job. As he lost his seven sons and three daughters. I wish someone could run to Job. As they slaughtered. All of his workers and employees. I wish someone could run to Job as his thousands of cattle and camel and horses were stolen. One of the wealthiest men ever in biblical time, on par with Jeff Bezos. I wish someone could have run to him as he had all his wealth stolen from him and his entire family, except his wife, killed. I wish they would have looked at him and said, don't worry, God will not give you something more than you can bear. I think I would have found the strength of that moment to bear a rock and throw it at whoever said that to me. Do you mean to tell me that, listen, do you know why Jesus says, come take my yoke for my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Because you can't handle life. Nearly everything in life, you can't bear it. You're not strong enough. This is not a TED Talk about how you can be a better person and you can tough it out and you'll be able to make it through. You can't. And I'm not trying to say that to discourage you. I'm not trying to say that to make you feel bad. But the reality is, is that when we make the statement, God will not give you more than you can bear, and we apply it outside of the statement of temptation, what we end up doing is we feed ourselves a lie that I can be enough. I can do it. I can make it through this. I'm going to be, a, and we even try and sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in there. By the grace of God, I can do this because God will not give me more than I can bear. By the grace of God, I will be able to tough this out, and that's not true. You want to know how I know that's not true? Because the Bible says, cast your burdens on him for he cares for you. It's a conversation about everything in my life that is difficult. Everything in my life that is painful. Whether it's a little painful or a lot of painful. Whether it's a little difficult or a lot of difficult. The conversation is not one where God says you better make it through this because I'm not giving you something that you can't make it through. No, the conversation is, listen, that thing, if you let it go on too long, is going to crush you and cripple you. So rather than trying to fight your way out of that thing in life, rather than trying to figure out your way to make it through this, rather than trying to lie to yourself and say, I can make it through this. Why don't you just do the good biblical thing and hand it over? 
God did not ask you to make it through life. God did not ask you to make it through hard times. God did not call you to make it through all of the pain and the suffering and the chaos. That's not what he did. Jesus doesn't even do that when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, Dad, if there's any way that I can do something else, let it be something else. I cannot handle the pain. I cannot handle the control. I cannot handle the weight of all the sin that is crushing down on me. And you know what it says at the end of that? After he looks at God and says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. What does it say? Right after he says those words, then angels came and tended to him. Jesus was not able in and of himself, despite the fact being fully God and fully man, Jesus was not able to live or survive under the burden until he looked at God and said, God, I can't do it. You're going to have to help me get through this and I'll try and make it. And then God says, now that you've finally given up and let me take control, I'll go ahead and send someone to help you walk through this so that you don't have to bear it on your own. Those angels weren't there just to make Jesus feel better about himself. They were there to get up underneath the weight of sin and death that he was having to carry to the cross. And if you're trying to wondering if that's really true, let's just go ahead and run to how he shows that's true in the physical realm. As he's walking up a blood-stained hill to go ahead and be crucified, he collapses under the weight of all the sin and the pain and the loss of blood and the loss of water. And what's it say? They grabbed someone from the crowd, threw him to the cross and said, carry it for him. No, you cannot make it through whatever you're going through right now. No, you cannot bear it. Let me make something clear. Whatever life is coming to you and dealing with you, God let it get there and it's more than you can handle. God looked at that thing and said, my kids can't handle it. My children can't make it through that. But guess what? I'm never going to leave them or forsake them. It's not a question about whether or not I gave them enough strength. It's a question about whether or not did I stick next to them so that when they feel like they're about to collapse, they unload that thing onto Almighty God. And then Jesus comes walking in and says, well, I'm carrying this for you. You take my burden, which is light. You take my yoke, which is easy. And I'll handle the thing that's trying to take you out while you handle just being close to me. Oh, don't get it confused. You're not supposed to be strong. Don't get it confused. You're not supposed to be smart. Don't be confused. You're not supposed to be wise. Don't let the lie sneak in that says, God will not give me more than he can bear. He absolutely will permit everything in your life to be more than you can bear for one reason and one reason alone, to keep you right next to him. And there's not a better place to be. Listen, it's wonderful that when God says, I'll make sure you're never tempted beyond what you can bear. I'll make sure that there's always a way of escape because I'm right there next to you. But please do not buy into the lie when Satan comes walking in and says, did God really say he'll never give you something more than you can bear when it comes to life? Because all of a sudden what happens, God, I can't handle this. God, I can't make it through this. If, if this is more than I can bear, but you said you'll never give me more than I can bear, well, then that means you must have left me. Because if the only way I can make it through this is if you won't give me something more than I can bear, and right now it's crippling and crushing me, then you must have deserted me. And if you've deserted me, then I'm left to myself. And if I'm left to myself, then that means sin is going to come in and ravage my life. That means I can't make it through anything that's coming. You understand? Look how Satan sneaks in. You don't know why we call it church lies? Because in our sincerity to honor God, in our desire to encourage, in our desire to lift up, we've misspoken. And Satan slithers in like a snake. Did God really say? And when all of a sudden we realize that what we've misspoken is a lie, but we think it's the word, that thing begins to bloom and blossom. 
And it begins to let me know, well, if I can't make it through this, then I can't resist temptation. And if I can't resist temptation, then that means I'm never going to have an escape from this. I know Jesus said he came to give me hope beyond hope and life beyond life. But if I can't make it out of this, then it means he's left me. And if he's left me, then I've got. I'm not talking about you going to hell. I'm talking you live in hell on earth. Look what he does with just a simple God will not give you more than you can bear. In a sincere desire to encourage. So let's replace it with truth. Temptation, God will not give you more than you can bear. Life, you better run right next to God because everything is more than you can bear. You wonder why you can't get a hold of your mind that it feels like it's running around in chaos? Because you can't fix it. That's why it says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and of sound mind. You want to find out how to get your mind back under control? Stop trying to figure out how to make it through it and start running to God and say, God, I need to do an exchange with you real fast. If you want to figure out how am I supposed to make it through this anxiety that keeps on feeling like it's crippling me. And keep in mind right now, we are not talking about if there is a legitimate mental break where you need medication. We're talking about the part of it that's sin. The Bible says, anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. If anxiety is crushing you and it's not a medication problem, then there's an issue with where you're running around. Stop trying to fix the anxiety on your own and start running next to God and say, God, I need an exchange. I need prayer. You take the anxiety. If it feels like you feel so sorrowful in your soul that the loneliness is crippling, consuming you, that you feel as though no one's there with you, it's going to crush you. Loneliness is one of Satan's favorite things because it's his way to remind you nobody cares nobody's there even God has left you but keep something in mind when loneliness is starting to try and cripple you the first thing to do is try and run next to God and say God I feel lonely I need a reminder that you're there I need a reminder by faith that you're still with me and then after I'm done being reminded God open my eyes so that I become close to other people because you didn't make me to live alone in this life you are not strong enough if I see one more YouTube video if I see one more pastor hop up behind their pulpit and say, you can do it, you can make it, I'm going to lose my mind because the truth of the Bible is you can't do it. You can't make it. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not wise enough. That's not to make you feel bad, but it's to let you know that God is sitting right there with everything, not withholding it. He says, it's sitting right here for the taking. Just give me an exchange. We like to say a lot of times that all the things that God has are free. They are not. It's just that what God asks in exchange for it has no value. He says, I'll take your anxiety and I'll give you my peace. But God, it's my anxiety. I've got, I'll take your anxiety. I'll give you my peace. I'll take your depression. I'll give you my joy. I'll take your loneliness and I will give you my comfort. I'll take. Is too much for you. Your job is not to make it through. Your job is to rebuke the lie that somehow God said he'll never give you more in life than you can bear. God help us that we undo that lie so that we start running back to the throne of the Father and say, God, I need an exchange. God, I need a trade-off. God, I need your yoke. God, I need your burden because what I've got right now is going to crush me. And if I don't trade with you soon, I'm done. I wish God would make me take the yoke sometimes. 
wouldn't that be nice? He just walks up to me and he looks at me and says, all right, dummy, you're done. Here, here's the easy part. I wish he did that sometimes. Sometimes I'm as stubborn as an ox. You wonder why he uses the word yoke. You want to know what's funny about a yoke? You got two. You want to know why it's light when you take the yoke Jesus has? It's not that the situation has changed. It's not that all of a sudden everything's gotten better. It's that when you finally let Jesus be the one to yoke up next to you, he's so strong in holding it that it ends up feeling lighter to me. Listen, I wish doing an exchange with Jesus made all of life just suddenly get better. That's not how it works. When he takes from you what's about to crush you and replaces it with something, it's not so that you can go on your merry way. There's a reason you're yoked next to him. It's so that you can see him handling on your behalf with ease the thing that was about to kill you. It's so that you can see him handling on your behalf with strength and power the thing that made you feel like it had no hope so that when everybody sees you walking around, how in the world are you still alive? How in the world I can see the tear-stained eyes and yet you still have a smile at the same time that the tears are rolling down your How in the world minutes ago, weeks ago, I saw the chaos in your life and you looked like you were, how in the world are you making it through this? And you just point to the one right next to you. I stopped trying to figure it out. I stopped trying to be strong enough. I stopped lying to myself that God will not give me something more than I can bear because the reality is it'll crush me every time. I don't want you to feel weak so that you feel bad about yourself. I want you to feel weak so that you remember you've got the most powerful, loving, gracious, audacious, dominant force that has been, that will ever be, or that can ever be, willing to come right next to you, throw himself up under you and everything crushing you, and carry you in his grace. It might still hurt, but it won't crush you anymore. Everything might still be a tornado, but it won't be throwing you around anymore. Everything still might be falling apart, but you'll be held together. There might be cracks and breaks appearing all over you. You might have to limp along, and yet even though you're limping, it feels like you're moving faster than when you were walking. Why? Because it's all about Christ being the one who comes next to you, letting you know, listen, I've let it be more than you can bear on purpose because I just want to remind you I'm still here for you. I just want to remind you that when something bigger comes along, I'm still able to handle it. I just want to remind you that I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you, even when it feels like I've left you, even when it feels like I don't care about you anymore, even when it feels like, and lies are coming in, saying that I've forgotten about you. I am trying to leave you weak so that you remember I'm always right here.